This is Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia. Welcome to South China Sea Currents, our weekly podcast on what's happening in the South China Sea. I'm joined by our South China Sea reporter, Drake Long, to talk about what he's been watching and writing about this week for RFA and Banar News. How are you doing, Drake? I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? I'm doing okay. Thank you very much. So, this week saw the annual gathering of ASEAN foreign ministers and the ASEAN Regional Forum. Obviously, this year's powwow of Southeast Asia's top diplomats and dialogue partners was a virtual one. And just as predictably, tensions in the South China Sea and acrimony between the US and China hogged all the attention. US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo urged Southeast Asian nations to avoid dealings with Chinese state-owned enterprises that the US slapped sanctions on last month for their involvement in land reclamation in the South China Sea. Don't let the Chinese Communist Party walk over us and our people, Pompeo said. China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi bit back, calling the US the biggest driver of militarization in the South China Sea. So, Drake, it's obviously not easy to take the temperature after these kinds of virtual meetings, but what's your sense of how the region reacted to this? war of words, and in particular, Pompeo's request that Southeast Asians not deal with these Chinese state-owned companies. Well, rhetoric aside, I don't think a lot of Southeast Asian countries are going to necessarily buy what one side or the other is selling, so to speak. So Pompeo got up and he talked about companies involved in the South China Sea, like CCCC. That was one of the companies that was sanctioned last month that we mentioned on a uh, previous podcast. CCCC is an infrastructure mega company. It's involved all across Southeast Asia. So for any Southeast Asian country to say, yeah, we'll, we'll get on board with those sanctions, that would essentially say they're going to cut out a major driver of infrastructure in their countries. And at the same time, there's no real alternative to it. Thoughts aside about what China has done in the South China Sea, some of the companies involved there aren't really replaceable in a country like Indonesia or in Malaysia or even Vietnam and the Philippines. The Philippines went through this process already in reaction to the U.S. sanctions, saying, you know, maybe we're going to sanction some of these Chinese companies as well. They considered it very briefly, and the president's office nixed it just this week. So I think that kind of shows you where the direction is going to go. You're going to have a lot of countries consider these sanctions or consider cutting these Chinese companies out, but they're ultimately going to go back on that just because they're so well entangled in the Southeast Asian economy at this point. It's not really possible. Right, because they're a big player in the Belt and Road Initiative, right? Yeah, absolutely. I was talking with Murray Hebert on our interview last week, and he said China's Belt and Road Initiative is not what a lot of people think it is. There's a lot of negotiation going on behind the scenes, actually. A lot of Southeast Asian countries are pushing back on some of these more onerous, ineffective Belt and Road projects, but they're sticking with the projects anyway. They're still going to go through. They're just going to be renegotiated in a different form, and companies like CCCC are integral to that. So they may want different terms for those projects, but they don't want to uproot them entirely, which is what sanctioning these companies would do. Okay. So among the the 10 ASEAN nations, which do you think would be the most favorably disposed to doing what Pompeo is asking for? I mean, it sounds like none of them are going to be jumping at this, but among those 10, who do you think would be most willing to do it? The Philippines is going to vacillate back and forth about this. Vietnam, who actually chaired the foreign minister's meeting, gave a very interesting speech where they said they welcomed the U.S. presence in the South China Sea and in Southeast Asia. 
And I think if any country would be willing to cut out Chinese construction companies, it would be Vietnam. Even though Vietnam and China are massive trading partners, the level of impact that Chinese companies have in Vietnam's like infrastructure and in the electrical grid and stuff like that is just not the same as it is in, say, Laos or Cambodia or the Philippines or Indonesia. So I think Vietnam is one country that would rhetorically support this move. But, you know, how much do Vietnamese sanctions on Chinese companies matter? Uh, that's for someone else to figure out, to be honest with you. So more broadly about the, the sort of US-China rift, how did that play out among the ASEAN nations in the comments that you sought from the foreign minister? The Indonesian foreign minister said, we have no interest in a US-China rivalry. We don't want to be involved in having to take one side or the other. And I think that's the general sentiment of ASEAN, especially at this point. ASEAN has always been meant to be its own kind of presence in Southeast Asia. It may not deal with security issues like how a lot of people want, but the ASEAN position is not on China's side, not on the US side, but on our own side. It's that concept of ASEAN centrality that they talk about so much. And Indonesia's foreign minister basically re-upped it. And I mean, if you look at the communiques out of the foreign minister's meeting, they also echo that idea quite prominently. So I think it's very clear that not many Southeast Asian countries are interested in leaning one way or the other. Accusations about Chinese companies in the South China Sea, China's narco-trafficking, accusations about the U.S. over-militarizing the South China Sea aside, those things aren't really going to move the needle one way or the other in a lot of ASEAN states. So what about uh, the China side of the equation? What were they doing diplomatically this week? Yeah, so right before the ASEAN summit, actually, the Chinese defense minister, Wei Feng He, he met with the Vietnamese ambassador in Beijing. He visited Indonesia. He also visited the Philippines today, and he visited Malaysia before that. And I believe he's going to see Brunei soon. So he was traveling all over the place this week. Before the foreign minister's meeting, it's abundantly clear that he was going to different countries to try to dissuade Southeast Asian states from bringing up the South China Sea at the meeting, or at least not talking about it too forcefully. If you look at the releases that China put out from its meetings in Indonesia and in Malaysia, they explicitly say, we both sides agree that the South China Sea is a place of peace and stability. We don't want any tensions in that area. And this is something that China frequently does before an ASEAN summit. They make the rounds and they try to convince Southeast Asian countries not to bring up the South China Sea or to take Beijing's view on the matter. Right. The ASEAN nations issued a joint communique after the foreign ministers met. I think you had the pleasure of reading the 20 plus pages of, <laughs> of this document. Yes. Now, it's not always a given these days that communique is going to come out. I remember maybe it was three years ago when they failed to agree on a communique. Because 2012. 2012. I think yep. in 20, 2017 as well. Oh, I, okay. Right. What about this year's iteration? What did you take away from that communique? Yeah, so China's lobbying clearly failed. The joint communique did mention the South China Sea. It was along the same lines as last year's communique. It said, you know, we uphold international law. We believe in freedom of overflight and freedom of navigation. All countries need to abide by UNCLOS, the United Nations Convention, the law of the sea. And we believe in the rule of law and peaceful dispute resolution in the South China Sea. So all of those things are things China does not necessarily want to show up in a joint communique. However, the communique also mentioned progress on the code of conduct talks. The code of conduct is supposed to be a blueprint for behavior between ASEAN states and China in the South China Sea. They are in talks right now, but there has been no progress in those negotiations for a year. Yet this ASEAN joint communique 
explicitly praises both sides for the progress they've made on the code of conduct. So with notes like this, you kind of got to read between the lines. It looks like, and this is what Aaron Connolly at the International Institute for Strategic Studies told me, ASEAN put in those lines about the code of conduct alongside the lines China does not like about the South China Sea to let China save some face. They wanted to make sure the communique said there was progress in the code of conduct talks, even though there really hasn't been any for a year, to make Beijing feel a little bit better. Another piece of interesting behind-the-scenes trivia was that there was actually an attempt to try to scuttle the communique and make sure it did not mention UNCLOS or the law of the sea by Laos, but the other ASEAN states batted it down and they came to a consensus uh, document. So China's lobbying didn't quite work, but ASEAN made a bit of a concession to China's viewpoint on things when it came to the code of conduct graph. It does seem that ASEAN has sort of shifted a little bit, that it's become more acceptable for them as a group to talk about the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea in reference to the South China Sea. We didn't used to get this in the past, right? No, definitely not. But it's only been within the past year, I would say, where you have Vietnam, Indonesia, the Philippines, and Malaysia all bringing up the 2016 Permanent Court of Arbitration Award. That was the landmark case between the Philippines and China that struck down all of China's claims in the South China Sea. So this reference to UNCLOS is really a reference to that ruling as well. And the way that ASEAN keeps bringing this up shows there's a consensus emerging towards adopting UNCLOS as kind of like its its default position when it comes to the South China Sea. And that's actually something that's going to rub China the wrong way. But I think that in terms of consensus issues, it's very heartening to see, especially when you have countries like Laos and Cambodia. Cambodia actually scuttled the communique in 2012 over the South China Sea because it, it w- did not want to have it mentioned whatsoever. Cambodia and Laos are not claimants in the South China Sea, so they are frequently, I don't want to say used, but China frequently suggests that they try to cut out references to the South China Sea in these documents, and it failed this year. And I think that shows that even those countries that aren't direct claimants are starting to realize that this is a question not just about the law of the sea, but the rule of law in Southeast Asia more generally. Right. You're listening to South China Sea Currents. So what else has been on your radar this week regarding South China Sea? Well, China did a drug bust, actually. The waters northwest of Fiery Cross Reef, they said, which was a little noticed news item, I believe, on Wednesday. And I kind of picked up on it and wanted to do a little bit more digging into it because it was the first time I'd ever heard of something like this happening. So that's what I was looking at. So, I mean, the drug bust, wasn't it last month, but they announced it this week? Yeah, so the drug bust happened on August 13th, but the release makes it sound like they've been tailing a drug trafficking gang since May. So they've been on the tail of the syndicate for a long time. Uh, They busted them on August 13th, and then they announced it on September 9th, you know, nearly a a full month later. It's a bit odd. But uh, what we do know from it, There was a drug syndicate, supposedly, that was running drugs from Fujian to the Golden Triangle of Southeast Asia, and they got interdicted northwest of Fiery Cross Reef. It's clear that the China Coast Guard and the Ministry of Public Security, which I've never seen in the South China Sea before, actually, never seen the MPS there, they were based on Fiery Cross Reef when they made the bust. So this may be the first time that a South China Sea base, an outpost, has been used for a anti-narcotic run like this. But China also says the first ever bust in the South China Sea of drugs. I don't know if that's true. Now, so it was the the Chinese state media was saying that the drugs originated in the Golden Triangle and they were being trafficked through the South China Sea, right? 
Yeah, honestly, there might be something you know more about than I. I mean, from what I understand, the Golden Triangle is the main area where all drugs are produced in Southeast Asia. I wouldn't think drugs would come through that part of the South China Sea. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It's like the open ocean. I mean, there's a lot of overland routes just on the border. I mean, the Golden Triangle practically borders China's Yunnan province. I feel like there's probably other ways that you could traffic drugs to that area. It seems a little odd to try to go through this particular part of the South China Sea, especially because there's all these disputed islets there and there's all these bases and coast guard running around all the time. Right. Yeah, it wouldn't be an easy place to escape security forces, you would think. So what is the sort of broader significance of this kind of action and China announcing it? It looks like this is another display of their jurisdiction or supposed jurisdiction over the waters of the Spratly Islands. So Fiery Cross Reef is, you know, thousands of nautical miles away from the Chinese coast. It's about 250 nautical miles away from the Vietnamese coast. By busting a ship there and using the Ministry of Public Security, which is a civilian law enforcement agency, it's not the Coast Guard whatsoever. It seems like China is trying to display that they have law enforcement jurisdiction over this area. From what I understand, under UNCLOSE, so long as a ship is flagged by the same country that interdicted it, they have perfect jurisdiction and perfect grounds to kind of arrest and seize the cargo. Uh, but we don't actually know if this is the Chinese flagged ship or not. I mean, it could have been sailing under a different flag. But regardless, China said, you know, we're, we're stepping up law enforcement in Nansha in the Spratly Islands. This is another display of that. I think it's mostly about asserting jurisdiction and bringing more and more of the types of institutions and agencies we see in mainland China, like the Ministry of Public Security's Anti-Narcotics Bureau, onto their islands in the South China Sea, like Fiery Cross Reef. Okay. It seemed like the report was a little bit patchy on the details. I mean, it doesn't mention what drugs they actually seized, right? Yeah, that, that's the weird thing. I mean, it's mostly synthetic stuff if it's from the Golden Triangle. I think it's like methamphetamine, ecstasy, heroin, what have you. But yeah, the release doesn't actually say what was being smuggled. Uh, they don't give the names of the suspects. There were six suspects in total. They merely said they were on the trail of a drug trafficking syndicate from Fujian since May. Drug trafficking is known to be a pretty big problem in China. Organized crime known to be a pretty big problem in areas like Fujian. But we don't really know any other details about who these people are, where they came from, or what they were trafficking for. Now, I noticed that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo issued a, another very sternly worded statement today. It was talking about the U.S. commitment to ASEAN. Mm -hmm. And in that, he actually accused the Chinese Communist Party of abetting arms and narcotics trafficking in the Mekong region, which was a sort of bit of a twist on the usual angle of rhetorical attack on China. Mm -hmm. So what, what do you make of that? I think that, uh, to, to be quite honest, I don't actually know the extent of which China does traffic drugs or arms, especially to the Mekong region. I think it's referencing China's really well-known trail of small arms sales to Myanmar's rebel groups, especially Wa State, which is in the border area between Yunnan province, China, and Myanmar. The drug thing, I don't know that much about. I think Pompeo was just trying to upgrade the US relationship with the Mekong region countries and trying to get them to see China as more of a competitor or threat to them uh, than they do traditionally. One of the more interesting things that happened this year at the US ASEAN dialogue was that the US upgraded its lower Mekong initiative into a Mekong US partnership which sounds rhetorical, but I think it basically just means they're devoting more resources to that Mekong region and uh, relationships with countries there. 
but you know to what extent does china actually traffic drugs to that area i don't know i don't believe he provided a lot of evidence for it either maybe he's talking about precursor chemicals that you need to make methamphetamine uh, i think that's been a, a long-standing concern of of countries around china that uh, those chemicals originate there but anyway, it's it's kind of interesting that Pompeo brought that up. Yes. So Drake, is there anything else on your on your radar for the coming week? Well, there's a lot more attention being paid these days to shipping the South China Sea. So one of the pieces that I'm trying to work on right now is I'm trying to actually see we have U.S. accusations that China's actions in the South China Sea affect international shipping and free trade through the region. We just recently had two military exercises in the Paracel Islands by China. So those exercises specified an area that no ships could pass through. That also gives us a template to where we can kind of figure out, you know, if they keep doing military exercises, how does this affect shipping? Because, I mean, shipping flows are pretty set. They all kind of go the same routes through that area. So that's what I'm trying to figure out right now is if we can actually quantify the impact that China's actions in the South China Sea have on international shipping. Well, that would be a great story if you can pull it off. But If I can pull it off. (laughs) And if anyone out there who's listening can help with that. I'm sure Drake would welcome any advice. If you've got any questions or feedback, please email us on South China Sea. That's all one word at rfa.org. Thanks, Drake, for your help and talking us through this week's uh, deliberations at ASEAN. Please check out his articles on the South China Sea at rfa.org and banarnews.org. On those sites, you can also catch up on our previous podcasts, or you can just search for South China Sea Currents on Spotify and iTunes. Or follow Drake on Twitter. His handle is drm underscore long. I'm Matt Pennington with Drake Long, South China Sea reporter for Radio Free Asia and Banana News. This podcast series is created by Leo Kim and produced by Radio Free Asia. Thank you for listening and please join us again. Bye.